and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Ros Taylor. On this week's edition, our supposedly world-beating response to COVID has turned out to be a world-beaten response, with an app that doesn't work, compounding errors of late lockdown and muddled messaging. But does the problem go deeper than the current government? Plus, the middle classes have often escaped the full impact of mass unemployment in recent recessions, but that may not be happening this time. Will the return of middle-class joblessness change our politics? And mask hysteria. Are you wearing one? When and where? If not, why not? We look at the pros, cons and etiquettes of covering up to conquer corona. All this and more in today's Bunker. Hello, welcome back to the big weekly edition of The Bunker. A diary note, our next joint live stream with Romaniacs on Zoom takes place on Thursday 9th of July at 8pm and it's exclusive to Patreon backers of either show. Supporters can register now, just go to your Patreon homepage or inbox to find out how. For everyone else, well, why not sign up? As well as access to the famous live streams, you'll also get every podcast with no adverts, plus mugs and t-shirts too. Now let's meet today's panel. Hello to comedian, writer, ex-New Labour spin doctor, editor of the Londoner Diary and the Evening Standard and soon to be host on Times Radio, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. How are you? Hello, Rolls. I'm good, thank you. God, I've got about as many jobs as George Osborne. That sounds quite bad, doesn't it? (laughs) I know, gig economy and all that. Very up to date. (laughs) (laughs) Bang on trend. Bang on trend. A lot, a lot of noise has been made about reducing the two metre distancing rule. Looks as though Johnson has finally bit the bullet and done it. Are you in favour? Well, it's just so difficult to to tell because, um, I mean, I do understand the siren call of doing this because for lots of, um, you know, hospitality, which is a really, really huge employer, they, they want to get the economy going out, like kind of getting going. But I just wonder how worried people will feel because I don't know if it will make a huge difference because they're still going to have to limit the number of people that go into bars and go into um, restaurants. And I think a lot of people have now got FOGO, which is fear of, of going out because they don't, you know, we've been hermetically sealed in our houses. And I don't think we have a huge amount of confidence in anything the government says right now, to be honest. <laughs> but which are you looking forward to being open more? Pubs, hairdressers or cinemas? Which one is it? Uh, for me, it's the beauty parlours, but they haven't said that the beauty parlours can be open yet. I want to get my nails and my eye. I need a full, like, me. I need like, a <laughs> lockdown. I need like another three months in a grooming parlour just to get myself. Yeah, honestly, I've got so much chin hair, I could like knit my own face mask from it. Like that is the stage we're at. <laughs> I know, I'm desperate. I just so need my highlights done. I'm sorry, that sounds so vacuous, doesn't it? But it's true. I want to be blonde again. <laughs> don't we all, Ross? Don't we all? <laughs> also back on the bunker, but still in Mykonos, we have Alexandreou. Hello, Alex. How's it going? Yeah. <laughs> oh, come right. on. We saw, we saw your all... picture of a boat on Instagram. Yeah, I know. It's just the constant flight cancellations are really getting to me, but I'll get there. Nigel Farage made a trip across the Atlantic in order to attend Trump's Tulsa rally. He got an exemption from the Secretary of State for Homeland Security because it was deemed to be in the national interest, apparently. Uh, Whose national interest was that? (laughs) Uh, British, obviously. I mean, he'll he'll have to quarantine for two weeks coming back. So all in all, he's out of a circulation for about a month. We made out like like bandits. (laughs) Seriously, though, he, he went all that way. And then his gig got cancelled because nobody turned up. Poor <laughs> Nigel. <laughs> yeah, only only six thousand people turned up to Trump's rally, and he didn't he didn't look too happy afterwards. But he did use the rally to prove how strong he is by dropping a glass glass on the floor with one hand. <laughs> um, is he a is he a write off the election in November now? Can we be reasonably confident that Biden's going to win it? No, and I, I don't think we want to be. Um, I think Trump is an incredibly dangerous man. Um, and if he believes he will definitely lose, he will be even more dangerous. I am incredibly concerned that he will try to cancel or somehow steal the election if he's certain he's going to lose it. Um, so I, it's weird, but you want him to go into it with a chance 
because otherwise I worry about what he might do. Completing the panel is broadcaster, Romaniac's regular and author of the soon-to-be-released book Deep Fakes and the Infoxalypse. It's Nina Schick. Hello, Nina. How are you? Hi, Roz. Good to be here. What do you make of John Bolton withdrawing his support for Donald Trump and saying he hopes he's a one-term president? Did it, does it really wash when he sat in all that dirt during impeachment? Well, I mean, I think it's just, first of all, his book sounds like it'd be quite interesting, if only because of the tussle that's going on now with Trump trying to block its release. Um, But ultimately, yeah, I mean, he looks a bit hypocritical, but I think there's a question about just how far Republican operatives are willing to go. I'm sure Bolton is trying to hawk his book, but he's not only the first person who's worked for Trump, who's then gone on to disavow him. Um, just a few weeks ago, you had Jim Mattis, who wrote this extraordinary extraordinary letter, you know, the military general who used to serve as Trump's secretary of state, who said that, you know, Trump is dangerous to the country and that any Republican who's supporting his bid second time around is actually putting the country at risk. So I think the bigger question here is just how complicit are those Republicans who are still fully on the Trump train willing to be? So I think um, John Bolton and Jim Mattis are interesting interventions, but I think the the far more depressing thing is all the other Republicans who aren't speaking out against Trump ahead of the election. Yeah, and all these people who got Trump so wrong in the beginning and thought he'd be a great president. Anyway, that's not that's not going well. <laughs> like oh <laughs> Britain is reopening following the lockdown and with round one of Covid sort of over, it's time to take stock and things don't look that good. We have the worst death toll in Europe, an imploding economy, an ever-changing message from government and last week the embarrassing failure of the track and trace app. Above all, there's a sense that the problems run deeper than an incompetent government. There's something wrong with how our country works. Nina, Britain has performed noticeably worse than almost every other European government. Why is that? Do our problems go deeper than a feckless, useless leadership? (laughs) Well, they just got it so wrong. And that starts, I mean, the buck ultimately stops with the government. Um, If you look at what happened last year, uh, the Johnson government wanting wholly to kind of focus on Brexit actually dismantled the pandemic's response team, which is something similar to what Trump's administration did in the US, where they kind of dismantled the pandemic's response team at the National Security Council in 2018. And the sad Mm. thing about all of this is that this is, I know it seems like unprecedented, it's a black swan event, but actually, if you look at it, what the experts were saying, you know, a pandemic was something that has been predicted for a long time. So this scenario is something the government should have been planning for and should have had a backup plan for just in case something like this were to happen so that they could take an off-the-shelf kind of response um, to mitigate the situation. Now, luckily, the Treasury had that kind of response in its back pocket, but the government didn't. And the biggest failing really is um, the fact that it didn't take the pandemic uh, seriously when it start, news started emerging from China in January and failed to get the contact tracing and the testing capabilities in place. And if you look at other countries that have handled the pandemic really well, Taiwan, Germany, New Zealand, as soon as they saw what was happening in China, they got all the tests into the labs. They started getting the contact tracing capability into place. And we didn't do that. And, and that's why we're really suffering now. Alex, things like our care system, for example, seem to be fundamentally broken and have been for a while because hospitals didn't want COVID patients, care homes didn't want them. And that was happening before lockdown because we built a system where there's a financial incentive to pass the buck to someone else. Mm. Are we an outlier on this compared to the rest of Europe? Um, I mean, I don't have an experience of every other country in Europe, but I'd say you're fundamentally different to, for example, how things are in Greece. Um, I I think there have been decades of division between young and old driven by politics. There's been the language of an ageing population seen as a problem. And there are people growing up now at the peak of their their contributory potential who have only ever heard of older people through this language of burden. 
and it filters through to policy. You can't expect it won't filter through to policy. So we wheel out our veterans on Remembrance Day and shower them with poppies, then we let them drown in their beds from COVID. That says to me that we, we venerate them as symbols to make us feel good, but we don't really respect them as fellow human beings. And that is a big, big problem. Austerity is partly to blame for the state we're in, but we've also bought into the culture of personal responsibility that's so prevalent in the US. Mm. And that feels baked into our system now in the UK. How much can the civil service do about that? We're still waiting, for example, for that white paper on social care that we've been waiting for for years now. (laughs) Well, The first thing we have to do is stop with the false dichotomy that personal responsibility is somehow mutually exclusive to social or state responsibility. Okay, Actually, not accepting I have a civic duty to pay tax and provide a safety net, including myself, a safety net for everyone, including me, not accepting that I have a duty to my fellow human beings, not accepting that we are interconnected, is a lack of of personal responsibility. So often we frame responsibility in terms of being responsible only for my own welfare, but that's selfishness. That is the opposite of responsibility. Personal responsibility is being responsible for my actions and understanding that they affect others. That is a really different concept. What would have to happen to show that there was a sea change in this country's attitude to the state? One of the things that's happened recently is bringing back probation in-house, but that's a kind of just a start. But what needs to happen next? Um, you know, you know, it's so easy to feel powerless uh, battling huge political monsters like that. But I do think this is something that we can change at the citizen level. I think we need to change from a nation of whingers to a nation of complainers. They are very different. And I think this will be transformational. What we do now is we say nothing, we avoid confrontation at all costs, with the exception of being passive-aggressive, shush anyone who might be up for it because don't make a fuss, go home and whine about it endlessly. We need to stop accepting shit products, shit services and shit government at every single level. And the balance in therapeutic settings needs to shift to give power to the patient or their next of kin to facilitate this. Because, you know, dealing with an elderly parent, I have so often felt that I am in a system where the doctor or the nurse says what happens and I have no input or my mother has no input. I think we need to shift away from that and begin to take power back and say, no, this isn't good enough. You know, if if your elderly parent is in a home that's not provi- providing a good enough service, we need to make that known rather than mutter under our breath and go home and whinge about it. I like that very much. Complain, don't whinge. Yeah. That could be the, the bunker's new motto, maybe. Nina, you've worked with leaders and administrators across Europe. Is there a British way of running government? And how is it thought of now? Well, there is actually traditionally a way in which um, our counterparts across the channel look at the British way of doing things. And that is that the Brits are traditionally thought of, of as being highly competent, highly pragmatic, very skilled negotiators, which is why the events in this country of the past few years have been so baffling, let's say, to um, many of our European counterparts. And I think it's fair to say that uh, the entire debacle around Brexit and the way that coronavirus has impacted us so negatively has enforced some of the negative stereotypes around how Britain is doing right now. (laughs) Um, So I think that (laughs) in the past few years... Uh, people, it's, you know, I hear this all the time when I'm in Germany, when um, politicians are really almost bemused and baffled as to what's going on with the Brits. Um, and I think that this episode in coronavirus, when you look at uh, how the government has incompetently bungled some of the messaging around it, when you look at our high death rate, has only served to reinforce that 
idea that Britain is really not in control of what's going on over here, or the government isn't at least. Aisha, COVID has hit the poorest and most marginalised hardest. Um, An IFS study out recently showed that four-fifths of workers in the bottom tenth of the earnings distribution either had their work shut down or they were unable to do their job at home, and only a quarter of those in the top tenth were in the same situation. Will there be any political price to pay for the government? I mean, they seem to think the former red wall is now theirs and that they will be satisfied with Brexit. But there are rumblings of discontent, aren't there, among those new MPs? They're proving more bullshy than was expected. Well, I think a lot of that is going to depend on the political and economic strategy that Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson um, pursue after the furlough scheme runs out. At the moment, they've had a very good reception because, to be fair, the job retention scheme was welcomed. It was um, generous. I mean, you can argue more should have been done for for self-employed people. But on the whole, it was um, surprisingly good and generous. So you even had people who were diehard Corbynistas um, you know, praising the, the government for this huge level of, of state intervention. But as we know, that is coming to an end. And that kind of means, I think, the sort of warm glow will possibly kind of go, fall away from, from the Chancellor. There, there are, I think there are divided views within the Conservative Party about what needs to happen. On the one hand, you will have um, Dominic Cummings and the people that delivered that red wall off the back of Brexit firmly saying there must not be anything that can look like it's austerity. We have to try and find some way of ploughing on with our levelling up agenda. And there is a general consensus that this is a good time and a judicious time to borrow. Borrowing is no longer a dirty word as it as it used to be. However, there are still fiscal hawks within the Conservative Party. There were newspaper reports just this week saying that actually there would have to be cuts in spending, which sounds quite like austerity to to, to most of us. I don't think that the spending taps can just continue um, to to, to be on. I just don't feel that that's what this Conservative government will will do. So I think that's when that's when it's going to be really, really tough for them. You know, a lot of the red wall voters went for them on on the back of, you know, there was going to be this sort of era of, of bounty and plenty in a post-Brexit world. But we obviously know that's not happening. And now we have the the pandemic. The only thing, though, that they are banking on, which will be very powerful for them, is the deployment of the culture wars. Because what they do know is that a lot of those um, voters in the Red Wall and those more kind of traditional heartland seats um, care very, very heavily about those culture war issues. And they know that um, they will favour a sort of conservative view on that. So I think that is something which the strategist, I say strategist, the strategist Dominic Cummings, <laughs> let's be quite honest, is really, really banking on. And that's why we had this you know, thing with Manira Merzer and, and that's why they're really kind of trying to ramp up these fights on statues, you know, um, gender wars, um, all of those kind of things. That feeds a lot of red meat to the, the red wall for them. But how does that link in with Black Lives Matter? I was thinking, Nina, in particular, what, what's the, uh, the problem here is that the Black Lives Matter movement was going to connect the way we failed BMAE people with a general failure of the way the state works. And if we're doubling down on the culture war, obviously it implies that the Conservatives aren't going to do that. Um, do you do you think Black Lives Matter has generated any pressure for change or has it been weaponized by the Tories to do the opposite? So I think Aisha is spot on when she talks about the increasing importance of the culture wars, because um, on one hand, um, you I think when the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protests started here in the UK, it could have potentially been emblematic to the huge societal shifts in public opinion you see in the United States, where overwhelmingly there is a consensus now that, um, you know, racism and kind of needs to be rooted out of society. And I think that in general, that sentiment is shared by the broad majority of the British public. Nonetheless, as that becomes more and more this 
almost perverse or obscene or silly battle about which statues are being pulled down and who is guarding Churchill today. I think it risks taking out any kind of real impetus for addressing these issues. And it's simply becoming a totemic battle across the line about the culture wars. And that, I think, is something that myself, as as a mixed race person who um, actually thinks that there's a lot to be grateful for in this country, but a lot of change that can still come. I think that's the real sad part of all of this, because I think that it, it risks becoming a theater about something which is fired up to kind of to, to almost get the worst out of the public and and not address some of the real issues that need to be addressed here. The COVID crisis is in the process of creating levels of unemployment we haven't seen since the early 1980s. The number of people out of work and claiming work-related benefits rose by 23% to 2.8 million over the past month as firms have been forced to close their doors. And despite the reopening of businesses, an additional 600,000 people became unemployed between March and May, with more almost certainly to come. We've become so used to full, if poorly paid and unequal employment for the past decade or so, but the future will be different. What happens when unemployment bites into not just the precariat, but the sharp-elbowed, politically active, some might say protected, middle classes too? Alex, our benefit system is geared almost exclusively towards job seekers on low incomes with the assumption that there are jobs out there. Are the newly unemployed middle class in for a shock? Short answer, yes. I I think we're in for a pretty brutal corrective. And I say that with no schadenfreude, but from experience. Uh, When I became homeless and destitute a decade ago, Um, from having led a very middle-class existence was when I truly understood how many pay packets away from ruin we all are, how much we all are the precariat, and the extent to which our life is built on money we haven't earned yet but expect to. So if that income dries up, you find yourself in a lot of trouble very, very quickly. If I can offer some comfort, it is that it's a lesson well worth learning. It's a lesson that's important, I think, also for environmental reasons, because it makes you less wasteful, and it will leave you a stronger and better person if you survive it. Sorry, that wasn't actually (laughs) very comforting, but... um, It's the best I can do in the circumstances. Aisha, a government that doesn't look after the middle classes often gets turfed out of power pretty quickly, we've seen in the past. And this government is primarily interested in the old, the retired, the southeast. That's where its traditional base is. But is the older, pensionable, aged vote going to be enough to sustain them? Well, I would argue they they do care about those voters, but they do also they they now have a new blessing and curse, which of course is the 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 infamous red wall that that we've mentioned. The you know Boris Johnson, the, the the one very good bit in his speech, I think it's probably the only good speech he's done, is the the line in the speech just after he won where he said you have lent me your vote. And I thought that was very, very smart because, you know, it's a big step for a lot of these people to vote Conservative. And the big question is, can the Conservatives keep them? So I think they're very, very mindful about not just their traditional base, the older people, as you say, but this red wall. And I certainly know that Downing Street is, and, you know, the the Dominic Cummings of this world, they are very, very focused um on on that so i think you know they they've got some they have got some quite big choices to make i mean one of the debates that we've seen is over the pensioners benefits and the the fabled haloed triple lock on the the pension and i understand that there is a bit of a a row going on between the treasury and number 10 people at the treasury are arguing that maybe this is something that should be looked at but of course you know people are very nervous um, about about doing that i think what they are going to find is that the the economic hangover is actually going to be in some ways even more difficult than the public health crisis that we've just been in and as you said 
you know, as a country, and let's be completely honest, we we get all misty eyed and, you know, we, we clap the carers, but we genuinely don't really care about people at the at the bottom or our key workers. But when it affects, you know, middle class Britain, then suddenly it's this thing is a big deal. And I think it's going to be a real shock coming down the system. I think at the moment, nobody has really got their head around, you know, quite how bad this economic downturn could could be. And I, I do accept Alex's point about um, young people, but at least they've got good skin and they've got that to, to sort of fall back on. For a lot of these, um, they've got dewy youth and beauty and slimness. But like for a lot of, like, I think what's going to be really tough for people is people kind of mid 40s and above and, and people in their 50s. Because if you lose your job in your 50s, it's quite hard to get another job, yet you still have a lot of financial responsibility. You're not getting your pension yet. You've often got kids that still need financial help. Mm. You've got older parents that still need help. You're that kind of classic sandwich generation. And um, for a lot of you know older, not just women, but men as well, once you've left the workplace in your 50s, it's really hard to get back in. And of course, that also um, builds up a lot of other issues, mental health issues, um, you know, relationship breakdown. So I do think there's going to be quite a big, I think we haven't really got our head around the but full cost of all of this. Can I, can I ask something, Aisha? Um, don't you think that that might open a danger sort of, you know, a, a different danger for the Conservatives in that if they go very heavily for that red wall and if they go for those new voters, then we, we might see some of the shires and some of the southeast and the southwest who are not particularly ideological. If they become convinced that Starmer is someone that can basically deliver them, you know, competent um, government and uh, an economic upturn, um, because that's essentially what happened with Blair, isn't it? You know, it was it was the South that turned towards Blair, Blair that made it such a, a comprehensive victory. Don't you think there's a danger there for the Conservatives? Well, uh, th- there is a danger, but I think the maths, the electoral maths with the Tory party, with Blair back in 1997 was was different to what Keir Starmer faces. Sure. So for Keir Starmer to win, yes, you're right. He he does have to um persuade a lot of conservatives to to vote for him, but he's also got to persuade not not just those um you know wealthy southeast Tories to vote for him. And I think it will be kind of hard for him to get their votes, but he's got to persuade a lot of those working class seats that once voted Labour in the north to vote for him and the Midlands. But the other massive problem that Keir Starmer's got is Scotland, because he's also got to persuade a lot of people in Scotland to switch from the SNP to Labour. And so he, I, I, I think, you know, he has a massive, massive job um, um, ahead of him. But I think for, for most of the Tory voters in the in this in those kind of southern seats i do think they are quite ideologically i think they're quite ideologically tory i don't think they're going to be that bothered about the economy because probably they're going to be you know of the type of person that would never think that a labor government could could deliver you know they're not going to they're not going to look at keir and think ah i'm going to go for him because he's economically more right wing and prudent than Boris Johnson. Like, it's going to be very unusual to get to the next election where the Tories are outflanking Labour in terms of a progressive economic policy. Sure. And I think that... I don't think it will be actually that... I, I don't think it will be that sophisticated. I think, you know, the situation will be so extreme that four years down the line, all of it will meld into one. And I think Keir Starmer will simply have to go to those seats and say, do you feel levelled up? Do you feel that he's delivered for you? He, he will. But remember, I think there's so many other... I mean, it'll it'll so depend on, you know, how bad things are. And again, as we mentioned earlier, these, these culture wars. And like I said, you cannot discount Scotland. Keir Starmer cannot win without really turning around his fortunes in Scotland. And right now, remember, or, there or are contemplating, elections. Or contemplating a coalition. 
because well, you know the, those seats know in Scotland. If you would do that, but those seats in Scotland are not going to Conservatives. They're going to a, a another broadly progressive party. Well, there. it's not that they're going; they've gone. Yeah, you know, Labour only has one MP in Scotland. Anyway. Who knows? Um, yeah, <laughs> Who knows exactly. what will happen next week, let alone in four years? <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen by dinner time? <laughs> I want to go a bit back over what Aisha was saying about um, what amounts to Generation X, really, because there has been an awful lot of talk about um, the clash between what you could call boomers, older people, pensioners, and millennials, and now Generation Z, who are coming into the labour market now. Um, but as you say, Ishii, there hasn't been much talk about Generation X, and you know, being Generation X myself, obviously that's um, that's regrettable. But it's it's an important point because these people are often at the intersection of of the big changes in the labour market. We haven't had always secure jobs, um, or if we did have, we they were taken away, um, and now we're many of us have been forced to get involved in the gig economy, whether we like it or not. Nina. The big economy has been the big change in the labour market in recent years. Do you think that is going to persist as we enter, as we get move into recession and see things change, or are people going to be able to demand more secure jobs and better conditions for themselves? No, it's it's absolutely going to persist, and I think that what we're seeing here is you know this huge transformation in society writ large. And the way that we see it, for example, in the way that geopolitics is shifting, we see it in the way that political allegiances are being redrawn. And a lot of that has to do with the kind of coming age of exponential technological progress and what that's going to mean for society going forward in a very, very short period of time. And one place where this is obviously going to manifest is in the labor market. And I know that for the past decade, with the rise of so-called populism and nationalism across the Western world. A lot of discussion has been about um, globalization and the limits of globalization. And of course, situations like the current one in which we're in uh, with COVID brings all of those conversations to the fore again. But of course, what we're not talking about, or we are talking about, um, is the threat of automation. This is going to completely overhaul our labor markets and our society. So I think that the bigger question here is really one of society in the exponential age, which we're now entering. We stand at the foothills of a revolution, a technologically powered revolution that is completely going to rewrite society. And because it's happening so quickly, it's hard to keep abreast of the developments and also for policy to develop quickly enough to be in line with the pace at which technology is evolving. And I think that this is obviously going to show us new winners and new losers, um, but it's certainly going to be a time of great flux. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. We're here to tell you about the podcast we host, You Scientist Weekly. It's the podcast that brings you the most important, startling, or just plain weird happenings in the world of science. It's where you get your science hit, basically. In recent episodes, we've heard about new discoveries of Martian volcanoes. We've discussed the way that mate choice might occur after copulation in humans. And we've even had a science music crossover segment featuring both Greta Thunberg and Brian May from Queen. And we've been all over the coronavirus pandemic from the very beginning. From health and technology to space and the environment, we share all the information you need to keep pace. You can find us by searching New Scientist Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts or by going to newscientist.com slash podcasts. Finally, let's take a look at Britain behind the mask. A recent poll for The Independent showed that just over half of us have worn a mask during the lockdown. And in an Ipsos Mooring global survey back in April, the British were the least likely to do it. But why the scepticism? And with the government now encouraging people to wear them, in some circumstances, our attitudes going to change. Aisha, are you a mask wearer yourself? I'm a, yeah, I've just I'm a recent mask wearer, um, and as I said at the beginning, I'm quite enjoying it because it does cover up like my moustache and like many double chins. So I'm quite happy about the whole mask thing, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I feel like it's a service for everybody. But I, I, they are. I find them very uncomfortable to 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 wear. They're very hot. Um, my glasses are getting you know all sort of steamed up. So they aren't very they aren't very like kind of comfortable. But when I've been out and about, I just feel it's so inconsistent. Like there's some people who are you know pretty much going to the corner shop in a full sort of hazmat suit. But they're like, <laughs> they're, yeah. but then there's just loads of people that I've seen you know even like on buses and things like that just with who haven't had masks on I know you're meant to have a mask on but no one's no one's like challenged them so I think it's it's quite hit and miss in my experience and what I've seen but I've hardly left my house I've only been like a in the mile radius of my house so I'm not an authoritative view on everything across London obviously <laughs> No, from my experience of North London as well, you've, you, you're bang on. It's just there are people who don't wear them at all and others, as you've say, who are really, really hardcore. Um, I've, I've uh, started wearing them in shops and then I kind of take them off when I leave the shop. But that seems a bit strange in some ways because clearly, you know, hardly body, anybody else putting them on. So <laughs> that's my kind of personal rule. But I find it, I, I kind of, I don't like the fact there's no point in wearing lipstick. That sounds incredibly vacuous <laughs> and obviously I can get over that. But also, as you say, the glasses steaming up is a nightmare. You just can't, especially in um, any kind of things in the supermarket. I had this awful experience yesterday where I had to go to like a sort of um, little corner shop to pick up a parcel that had been delivered for me and I was having this sort of altercation with the man who insisted that I needed like you know full passport biometric passport to get given this this parcel and then you know I was fully tooled up I had like a hat on, I had a cap sunglasses <laughs> like a massive mask some sort of scarf thing and he made me take it all off to identify myself and it was like I felt like I was sort of getting naked in front of people like showing me the face. I was like I've become the true Muslim that I always should have been basically <laughs> my, my sense of modesty it was quite bizarre well it isn't it is uh, it's an annoyance when you realize face id on your phone yes. doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> a minor annoyance can I just stress I, I I yeah um Nina what about you are you wearing a mask I'm not wearing a mask all the time I wear it sometimes and I think Aisha hit the nail on the head when she said you know the problem really is the inconsistency of it um in January I was actually traveling through Hong Kong and as soon as I arrived, you know, it was obvious they were taking COVID very, very seriously. Everyone was wearing a mask and you could almost kind of uh, discern where people had come from based on whether or not they're wearing a mask. So pretty much every single Westerner wasn't wearing a mask. Every Asian, East Asian person was wearing a mask. And I'm going to make a joke at the expense of the South Asians because I'm one myself. Uh, the South Asians had masks, but they were wearing them around their neck. So they weren't wearing them properly. <laughs> but I think, yeah, when as soon as I came back to Europe, you know, seeing that nobody was wearing a mask, and this really comes from the top, right? I mean, we were, when I was traveling to Hong Kong, I went and took advice from a pharmacist because I was slightly concerned. How should I protect myself? And he's like, well, don't bother with a mask because they don't do anything. And as a matter of fact, um, they may help breed infection around your mouth. And now the advice is, no, now all of a sudden everybody should wear a mask. And, and I think that's the real problem here because you can't do months and months of, oh, don't wear a mask. It doesn't do anything. Just wash your hands for 20 seconds. Um, and then now be like, no, you have to wear a mask. Because people, you, if you have that inconsistency of message and everyone around you isn't wearing one, I fail to see how you can get everyone to agree to the rules. So should the rules change? I mean, they're compulsory on public transport now in Britain. Should we also say they're compulsory in shops and just make that clear? Or is there another variation we can work with? Mm, well, I think this goes right back to the inconsistency on message with the government, because I think for a certain point when lockdown started, they had us, they had everyone's attention, everyone was abiding with the lockdown. I think they were even shocked at how much the population was abiding with the lockdown. I think they had suspected that more people would be trying to break it. But instead, you know, you had um, people reporting their neighbors for walking their dog and so on and so forth. But since then, I mean, and it might have had something to do with the whole Barnard Castle, Castle incident. Um, nobody seems to really be listening to the government anymore. Some kind of impetus has gone. You know, they've kind of lost the attention yeah. Public. So, I mean, I didn't, you know, I haven't been on public transport since lockdown started. 
And um, I, I didn't know it was compulsory to wear a mask on public transport. Not that I've been on public transport because I haven't really been listening to the government briefings. And I'm someone who's quite politically engaged. So I think that's probably representative of the lar pop larger population. If you look around, I mean, just look outside of your window and people seem to be kind of interpreting the rules for themselves now. So even if they made it mandatory and compulsory, I think the bigger problem is how do you actually enforce that? I think they've lost the public now. Alex, you've done a lot of work with masks in the theatre, which is obviously a completely different literally scenario in many ways but what's it told you about how we relate to each other when we're wearing masks well i mean it is different and it isn't different because um because it's actually a very western idea to communicate emotion with your face um you know in in ancient greek theater everyone wore masks same in interestingly in uh, most traditional East Asian theatre, so most Japanese no theatre, uh, you know, uh, Chinese uh, theatre, masks are very, very common. And so I did a, a sort of six-month stint in uh, drama school where we did a lot of mask work, and they have a huge amount of rules attached to them about how uh, you, your body must always face the other person if you're wearing a mask because they need to be able to read your body language fully. Um, you know about how you communicate, whether you should whether you should be making facial expressions under the mask or not, whether that helps you or not. Um, but it is a cultural thing, and I think that's why they really haven't. Uh, caught on in the UK because I think culture is mixed up in this. Um, you know, we've spent a decade at least, if not two decades, having this huge debate about Muslim women that wear the, the niqab and the burqa um, and about whether they, they are allowed to cover up in public or not, uh, whether that's unfair to other people who are not able to see their face somehow and it's very difficult difficult to turn around from that cultural point of view you know from from 20 years of basically taking the mickey out of japanese tourists for wearing masks on the underground literally you know considering considering them the object of ridicule um to go to moving to a place where we can say okay we all need to to wear them, you know, so our culture is threaded throughout this whole thing. I mean, Japanese culture has this concept called the ki, um, QI, which is about, uh, you know, the energy you take in through your mouth and about how you mustn't breathe in the feng, which is any kind of toxic air, any kind of toxic energy. And also, a lot of the Chinese big cities, they have really big problems with pollution. A lot of big Asian metropolis, you know, people wear masks to protect themselves from pollution particulates. So it's a lot more culturally normalized. Um, so I think the resistance is uh, to a thing that's trying to make us something that's not within our cultural norms. And it's really deeply, deeply rooted. What's your mask vibe, Alex? I mean, uh, when you when you do wear one, I've, I've managed to buy one off Etsy with bees on it, which I'm really <laughs> fond of now. <laughs> I feel quite a lot better about wearing it. How do you manage? Because you have really seen on Zoom chats and things, you have really quite an impressive lockdown beard. <laughs> I, how, how does that work with masks? I've trimmed it now, you know. Um, oh. Look, uh, it, a, a beard is a problem with uh, sort of uh, hospital-grade masks because they're meant to make a seal around your face. And if you have a beard or even any kind of stubble, then the masks can't make a seal around your uh, respiratory um, entrances. Uh, there's actually a, a massive infographic on the CDC site. I would advise all of you to go and look at it, about what sort of moustaches and beards allow a seal 
So, you know, soul catcher or a goatee is all right. Um, you know, most mustaches are all right, but not the ones that extend beyond where the mask would go. Um, <laughs> it's really complicated science. But the, the, the simple cloth ones that we're meant to wear on transport, they actually make them with a compartment for beards. So you, <laughs> so you can get a face mask, stroke, beard snood. I didn't make that up. <laughs> That is actually a thing. You can get a, a face mask, stroke, beard, snood. So um, there you go. <laughs> okay. That is a very useful public service announcement, Alex, which I was completely unaware of and which I won't be personally needing. Can, can, <laughs> can I add one more delicious detail on masks? Um, so... <laughs> Uh, I first became aware that there was a niche porn industry that was all to do with personal protective equipment at, oh. at the start of the coronavirus epidemic because they donated PPE to hospitals. So there were porn companies that produced this niche porn that has to do with PPE that had spare supplies of personal protective equipment that they donated to hospitals. And apparently since the coronavirus pandemic, the sort of doctor-nurse protective equipment uh, porn uh, industry has is experiencing a huge boom. They're the most viewed videos on Pornhub and, and sites like that. Um, so... There you go. It, it, you know, it's it's infiltrating every single aspect of our lives. How do you know all this, Alex? <laughs> research, <laughs> research, darling. Work, work, work. I work my fingers to the bone for this podcast. <laughs> you know, I really think if it were me, it would be dentists. I mean, that's what I'm missing, frankly. I really need a checkup. <laughs> We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. The sun is shining and we can now go and queue outside whatever shop we like. But what are our panellists doing to take their minds off the thought of a second wave? Aisha, what's your diversion of choice this week? So I'm watching um, this show called I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole on um, BBC iPlayer. And it is absolutely, it's astonishing it's so intense it's the story um it's actually a number of stories about consent and sexual assault it's just it's i mean it's very very funny she's an she's a great kind of comic talent but her writing is so searing and it's addressing these really important issues in a way which i've never ever seen um a, a television program or film or drama do it's so brutal but so honest as well and I just think it's 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 one of the most powerful things I think I've seen like in in years amazing really well worth a watch but quite harrowing and what's it on is it on um, it's on iPlayer iPlayer yeah BBC iPlayer brilliant Nina how about you well aside from the park with my daughter in this amazing weather I too am watching an oldie and a goodie, and uh, because obviously we're in lockdown, well, we well we can't travel. I am living vicariously through a great, the great Anthony Bourdain, watching his Parts Unknown, where he of course travels the world, sampling different cuisine, and even though he's no longer with us, his shows are still so great, and I so enjoy watching them, and I think everybody does. They're so incredible. Alex, how about you? Um, other than PPE porn, you, you mean? Um, <laughs> um, you know, I've been I've been doing a little bit of Marie Kondo style decluttering Ooh. because Ooh. I was very resistant to this at first because I'm a hoarder, and so um, so when faced with the idea of decluttering, I end up making a tiny little pile of things to go. And a huge pile of, well, I don't know, I might need this at some point. Um, so, um, but actually, after this period of lockdown, when I've spent 
quality time at home with my stuff, I find I have a much better idea of what I genuinely do occasionally use and what I genuinely never will. So I'm doing a huge uh, sort of clear out, uh, declutter of paperwork and clothes and everything. And But not your PPE porn. It, no, that's staying. It, it's... It, <laughs> Uh, Listen, it, he's adding no space. I, I, it, I give very you, busy. I very give busy. He's working his fingers to, to, to the boner. I give you interesting information and you turn it into filth. You <laughs> disgust me, frankly. <laughs> you started it, now. You totally started it. Okay, well, I had, I had a very strange day yesterday because uh, my father died during lockdown, as I probably mentioned before, the bunker or Romaniacs or something. And so yesterday we drove down to pick up his ashes, um, which um, is a weird thing to do. And it's kind of, there's actually, a, Graham Swift wrote a whole book um, around this story of people scattering ashes. And we are not scattering the ashes yet because we want to get the fam- wider family together. And that's obviously not possible at the moment. But we did decide to make a bit of a day of it because he it was Brighton. So we went to the seaside at Botting Dean. And we had a lovely day, um, lovely, lovely few hours eating ice cream. How was the weather? chips. And it was gorgeous, really oh, gorgeous, lovely. a bit windy. And it was fantastic to get into the sea. But at the same time, there was this big box of ashes, which is quite big. And it was very strange. So that was my distraction for this week. <laughs> anyway, thank you to our panel, Nina Schick. Bye. Thanks for having me. Alexandreou. Yes, yes. And Aisha Hazarika. Goodbye. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here are some now. Hello and many thanks from me to Helen Pickering, Jason Marik, Rob Ives and Tony Lloyd. Hello and thanks from me for your support to Samuel, James Lee, Tabitha Brady and Thomas Weiss. Uh, hello from me, a big thank you to Lucy, Gavin Wyman, Eva Maria Bonin and Lewis Brown. And huge thanks from me to Judy Gannon, Mark Drew, Paul Everett and Christopher Scott. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor with Alexandreou, Nina Schick and Aisha Hazarika. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and the assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.